This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 57. Today we speak with Richard B. Gaffin, Jr. to discuss sanctification and the gospel. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey. Today we're sitting around the table for lunch, uh, an unusual circumstance, but we're happy to have this opportunity. I have Jeff Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. Thanks for having us over, Jeff. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. We also have James Dalzell, who is a Ph.D. student at Westminster Theological Seminary. It's great to have you with us, James. Not normally present with all of us together, but you're here Yeah, now. nice to have everyone in the same room. <laughs> and uh, Jim Cassidy, who's a pastor at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. How are you doing, Jim? All right, Camden. Good to be here. And our special guest, we're very pleased to have Dr. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., who is Professor of Biblical and Systematic Theology Emeritus at Westminster Theological Seminary. It's a great honor to have you here. Well, I'm very pleased to be here and to be in such good company. <laughs> That's a debatable point. So you can send your, your, quest, your, your comments and reaction to that at mail at reformforum.org. But uh, Dr. Gaffin is a... Uh, is, uh, made a wonderful contribution to the world of biblical and systematic theology. We're very pleased to have him on. Uh, he's written uh, several books, including By Faith, Not By Sight, as well as Resurrection and Redemption. And Jeff and Dr. Tipton were pleased to bring forth a festrift in honor of Dr. Gaffin entitled Resurrection and Eschatology. Today we're going to be speaking along uh, the line of development in his thought, talking about sanctification and the gospel, uh, exploring how sanctification is related to other benefits uh, that come from union with Christ and also with union uh, with Christ itself. Uh, but first, we had. Uh, do we have any news, any book news or reviews, conferences, that sort of thing? Yes. Yeah. Uh, one thing is, uh, as we've already said, that the Bible Works 8 is now out and available. And I actually picked up a copy uh, the other day. My wife uh, bought that for me for Christmas, and I is, I installed it yesterday and was looking at the uh, uh, the helpful videos that go along uh, with it. And it's it is a powerful program in all of the uh, lexicons, dictionaries, the texts that are on that are just mind blowing. And I would. Uh, I recommend that uh, if you're going to do serious work in the languages, this is a wonderful tool. What Jeff hasn't told you is when he installed it on his computer, the seams of the computer began to bulge. They did. <laughs> and, uh, Four gigabytes, uh, almost five gigabytes uh, of material uh, on on the program. And that is not, that it comes with 40 modern language Bibles or modern language uh Groups, because there's in several of them, there's more than one. Like the Dutch has four or five Bibles, the German has four or five Bibles. So uh, it's very, and it's an amazing uh, tool. Uh, and it lead it. Uh, what it does is it. Uh, as I was watching the videos, I said to myself, "If we can't handle the world, the word uh, rightly with this kind of a tool, we are pathetic, or dangerous, or dangerous." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. We do want to make note that Bible Works is extremely handy, but it, of course, doesn't replace uh, knowing your Bible yourself or knowing your original languages. In That's fact, right. it can also be 
it could be a pretty dangerous tool if you use it uh, to do Greek and Hebrew analysis without ever having learned Greek or Hebrew. Yes, are, that's are correct. You, are you just saying that because Dr. Gaffin's here? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just making the note. <laughs> I'm the, computer, the computer doesn't replace uh, – Replace the, uh, the the student or the scholar, but rather it helps. But there's no there nor, nor does it replace an overhead projector either. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> that was a cheap shot. <laughs> I've been naughty. My silent approval to all this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but there's some neat stuff in there. Some of the, oh, there's new uh, uh, cross reference window. Uh, the last version introduced maps, so you can click on place names and it brings up satellite images of. Yeah, the, the the maps add two and a half gigabytes uh, yeah. uh, onto your hard drive if you add that. Uh, all of these things you can add or, or not add. Put- and it brings up satellite images of. Yeah, the the, the maps add two and a half gigabytes uh, yeah. uh, onto your hard drive if you add that. Uh, all of these things you can add or, or not add put on your in your system. Right, you can choose. So you have you you have control over how much of the material you want you want. You've got the pseudepigrapha. This is all uh, in the in the program. Excellent. Great for missionaries, I would think, especially mm-hmm. who are you know are limited in what books they can take with them onto the mission field. That's Bible Works Eight. You can get that at the Westminster Bookstore. If you already have a copy, you can get uh, an upgrade for uh, much less. Uh, and it, it depends on how old your copy is. Uh, the price does. Are there any other new books or any news? Uh, I don't have my computer in front of me. It is behind me, so it's hard for me to check. But there is a new. I think it's a forthcoming book. I don't think it's out yet on something like The Beauty of Reformed Worship by John Payne that's uh, just uh, either been released or is coming out uh, with a, a foreword by Daryl Hart. Oh, excellent. That guy sounds familiar. Why do I know that name? Is this the same John Payne who edited the Sermons on the Lord's Supper? By yes, John by John Owen. I believe it's the same. And in fact, uh, uh, Reverend Payne is a... Uh, Nearby, our good friend Nick Batzig, and and maybe a future can, a candidate for a future episode. Excellent of the uh, of the Christ the Center. Uh, two other uh, books that I wanted to mention. Uh, one is uh, a book by uh, Reverend Doctor Mark Larson, and I believe the title is Calvin and the State. It is published by Wiffenstock uh, out of Oregon, uh, and. Uh, or- and it's uh, dealing with the uh, uh, the. It's based on his dissertation, which he did at Calvin Seminary under Richard Muller, uh, and it's dealing with the idea that uh, it's countering the idea that uh, John Calvin was trying to institute a theocracy in Geneva. Yeah. So, and he, I believe, he argues for more uh, that Calvin had more of a republican view, and by republican, I mean not monarchical. Uh, not Republican versus Democrat. Okay, uh, and John Calvin was a Republican. <laughs> well, I can believe that. Uh, anyways, moving along, uh, and also the and then the other book is a republication. Oh, I should say that Mark Larson is an OPC pastor in my Jim's in my Presbytery uh, of New Jersey. He's the pastor. Is it Grace? Grace OPC, OPC. in Fairlawn, New Jersey up in, in the Paramus, New Jersey area, up by New York City. Uh, the other book is, and he would be a great one to interview. Yes. Uh, and then the other book is uh, Jonathan Edwards, a republication of Carl Bogue's work, Jonathan Edwards and the Covenant of Grace, uh, which was originally published back in the 70s. 
district based on the dissertation of Dr. Bogue that he did at the Free University under what's that guy's name? Garrett Cornelius Burkauer. And it's an excellent it's an excellent book. Uh basically tearing to shreds the Perry Miller thesis, uh the Calvin versus the Calvinist thesis, uh, as it was applied to Edwards. Uh, Miller tried to say that Edwards was closer to Calvin, that he wasn't a covenant, covenant theologian, which meant that Miller couldn't have read most of what Edwards wrote, but that's another story. And uh, he argued that uh, uh, that the covenant theology was the Arminianizing of uh, reform of Calvin's view. So uh, Edwards, in his mind, was closer to Calvin than he was to the uh, to, to covenant theology and Bogue explodes that nonsense. Hmm. So I'm glad to see it back in print. Uh, that's published by Wiffenstock as part of the Jonathan Edwards uh, Classic Studies series. Well, you can find all those books. We'll put links to those in our show notes. And uh, we also like to put up a bibliography with every every episode so you'll be able to get those uh, and be able to find uh, what you're looking for. Uh, if there's no more news, uh, we'd like to get right into our subject today. We're talking about sanctification and the gospel, uh, and that might sound like a, a strange, maybe not a strange topic or, or a basic topic, but it's very interesting. We we typically understand uh, as Reformed people that there are several blessings that come from union with Christ. Uh, Christ earns our salvation, and then out of that we receive several benefits through union with Him, including justification, adoption, glorification, and today our subject, sanctification. But there are different views and understandings of how those benefits relate to one another, uh, whether there's a logical priority of one over the other, uh, whether they are properly rooted in union at all. Um, there have been, there's been many, many uh, wells of ink used to describe uh, the relationship of the benefits to the other, and we're very pleased to have Dr. Gaffin on uh, just to shed some light on this and discuss some of the issues. And Dr. Gaffin, maybe as we begin, we'll ask a very wide and broad and, and what is seemingly a simple question, but one that's very deep as well. Um, could What is the gospel? How would you describe that? What is the what? How should we understand it when we when we speak about the gospel? What is entailed with that word? <clears throat> well, I think as uh, you, uh, Camden, as you indicate in the way you put the question, can be answered different ways. Oh, I think how I would prefer to get at that was would be to go uh, to Paul uh, as one of the key. Uh, instruments of God's revelation in the New Testament, he seems to have had a pretty sound grasp of the gospel. <laughs> and I think that uh, he guides us well. And I'm thinking particularly of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, by the way, cut me off if you think I'm going on too no. long or whatever. Um, <clears throat> see, right at the beginning of, of chapter 15, he indicates that he's concerned with his gospel. He talks about how it has been uh, received and uh, passed on by him. He's very focused on the gospel at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, and he comes right to, I think there can't be any reason for seeing it otherwise, to the heart of the gospel in verses 3 and 4, where he says he passed on to them in this context of what the gospel is, those things of first importance, as we, uh, as you under- best understand the Greek there, <clears throat> in most translations, render it... Um, 
in protoise of, of first importance. So Paul is telling us here now, I'm interested in the gospel, and I'm going to take you to what is the heart of my gospel, and you'll recall then that it is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was uh, buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So to focus that further, Paul is saying uh, that the gospel uh, is the death and resurrection of Christ as the fulfillment of scripture, and particularly as that death and resurrection are related to human sin, our sin. And more, most pointedly, then, you could say uh, that the gospel is uh, the death of Christ for our sins, the death and resurrection of Christ as it bears on our sin. So there you have it in a nutshell. Uh, and um, <clears throat> I think then you have to think through from there what it means for Paul that Christ died for our sins and was raised. So, um, I don't know if you want me to go on there. You could want to pick could up I yeah, ask a question related to that? Um, and this this is just in kind of moving on on our topic that we're looking at in terms of sanctification. Is the way you describe the gospel, I think Ritterboss would call that historia, uh, so it's a it's a declaration. I think Machen says at the beginning of Christianity and liberalism that the gospel is a grand indicative, um, and that the the indicative nature of the gospel is important. How does that relate to the command or the hortatory? Is there a sense in which um, the the gospel as as accomplished and is embodied in Christ Himself? How does that relate to the proclamation of the gospel? And and especially, could you comment on whether the gospel is in any sense, a command. <clears throat> well, um, I think the gospel is, you know, in Paul's language, what Christ has done for us, finished in complete weak good accent. Now, <clears throat> as you emphasized, uh, did you use the language of Historia Salutis? Mm-hmm. I did. Okay, yeah. so I, I can use that. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah we have a website, historiasalutis.com. <laughs> Yeah. To, uh, check it out. <laughs> I will have to check that out. <laughs> Sorry, I missed that. But uh, in other words, but you know, for someone that that's not totally familiar with, that's simply talking about the accomplishment of our salvation. It's finished. It's complete. But as um, uh, as uh, Bobbing, for instance, makes very clear in the very useful discussion of the ordo salutis or the application of redemption. In, toward the end of volume three of his dogmatics, um, a redemption without application is just not redemption. So I'm making that point to get then a more directly to your question, uh, James, that the, um, the, the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel as an announcement of what has been accomplished in Christ involves a call for faith and repentance. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, as we were talking before we started this conversation, you were mentioning Luke 24 at the end. See, I think that's very important that there you have the reference. What is said to be written in the Old Testament, three elements, death, messianic death, messianic resurrection, and what is uh, syntactically connected there, and as an indispensable third element, the proclamation of of uh, the call of the nations to repentance for the remission of sins. 
And I th- I would say, um, without trying to take the time to do it now, that reference to repentance there at the end of Luke's gospel uh, involves broadly, it encompasses what uh, subsequent uh, theology, particularly Reformed theology, would distinguish between faith and repentance. So, in other words, faith is in view there. So uh, the, the the proclamation of the gospel involves a call to faith. And uh, um, now, you, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you would want to say that um, that uh, faith is part of the gospel, but faith is certainly the response to the gospel, understood as what 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 Christ has done. So the question is really. Uh, particularly as it would bear on sanctification, how does the gospel, that is what Christ has done in dying for our sins, relate to sanctification? Mm. Speaking of that and and mentioning, couching this in terms of Historia Salutis, one one thing you're very, uh, that has been very helpful for me in your book, Resurrection and Redemption, uh, for those who are interested, I think this is around page 120. And the only reason I know that is because I'm reading it I don't have that memorized. I'm not that big of a I geek. was impressed. <laughs> but um, you, you speak about what Christ has done in his death and resurrection, and you talk about his resurrection uh, being Christ's justification, his adoption, his glorification. That one's a little interesting. And then also his sanctification. How is Christ's resurrection those things? How, how properly can we say that? <clears throat> well, I think um, to really get an adequate answer to that question, I have to refer you to uh, what's there around, what do you say, page 120? <laughs> you know, to, to, quite, to try to give a quick answer uh, sure. uh, to that. Um, you see, Christ, in his, um, in his work, is our representative. He's our substitute and uh, he then involves himself in bearing our sin and all of its consequences with the important exception of his uh, of his own uh he, without it involving a tribute to him some sort of personal depravity to his person but um you said i think in a way you have to back back away uh for a second from your question mm-hmm. <clears throat> see what is the liability of sin Okay, sin is disobedience, is rebellion against God, but it can be seen as having a double, and a lot of people have pointed this out, but I just want to underline it, a double consequence. One reflects more back on God, our relationship to him. In other words, we are now judicially liable, we're guilty. <clears throat> but another equal consequence is that we become uh, entrapped in what Paul would call the dominion or slavery of sin. And um, Christ, in other words, sin, we are delivered from sin as a power. And I would say that when Paul says, Romans 6, 9, that Christ died, uh, that Christ in his, died, in his death, he died to sin once for all, he has in view the fact that uh, in that context where he's, he's dealing with the believer's own deliverance from the dominion of sin. Yes, in fact, in view of the fact that Christ, <clears throat> as our representative sin bearer, is exposed fully to the uh, 
to the effects of sin in the creation, uh, to what we often describe as his state of humiliation, which involved him fully in being exposed to temptation, and that in his uh, in his uh, death and resurrection, uh, he is delivered uh, for us from the dominion and power of sin. Mm-hmm. He breaks the power of sin as well as removes the guilt of sin. So, so the gospel the gospel is saying something when we when we proclaim Christ crucified and raised. Uh, as relative to sin, you mentioned in your definition or your description of the gospel, we we are saying something about sin both as condemning and as corrupting. Yes. Uh, and it's that corrupting aspect that brings sanctification into view in the proclamation of the gospel. Um, yeah. See, I think, I think what happens, <clears throat> you know, particularly if you raise the question, if you look at the question, how is, is sanctification related to the gospel? I would I would be bound to stress that it's integral uh, to the gospel. Uh, see, I think what uh, if we can go back to First Corinthians fifteen three and four. I think a lot of people read, uh, "He died for our sins according to the scriptures." That he died for the guilt of our sin, and that what Paul is talking there about is our justification and our justification only. Now, of course, Paul is saying that much, but see, I think we're bound to say he is he is saying something more. He says he died for our sin. He doesn't say he died for our, the guilt of our sin, and then in order to leave us in the corruption and power of, of sin, but his death for sin is a death that delivers us from all of the consequences of sin. And in a basic twofold profile, yeah. from its guilt and from its corrupting, enslaving power. And that's something Calvin is also very keen on pointing out that sin is a twofold problem, and, it, and God answers the problem with a twofold grace, a duplex gratia. Um, just to uh, go back to your Bavink um, uh, citation earlier, um, Calvin says something similar. If it's if it if Christ remains outside of us, he is of no use to us. So um, wherein uh, might we make the connection? Where, where, where is the intersection between then what we would call the Historia Salutis and then the Ordo Salutis? How does Christ once and for all um, work in history, referred to by Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and following, how does that then get to me. <clears throat> well, you already, I think, drew us to the pa- our attention to the passage in Calvin, which in all of Reformed Christian literature, I think, answers that question as, as best as any. If, if I could just pick up on, we're talking about Institutes 1, 1, and, excuse me, 3, 1, 1, and 2. And um, by the way, if I could just underline your um, um, your 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 site of what you already cite, cited, uh, the second sentence of Book Three of the Institutes. Uh, you know, we all have different experiences in 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 our reading and our study, but the uh, there have been few sentences that have hit me with such an impact as when it finally uh, when it dawned on me what what Calvin was saying there 
all that Christ has suffered for us, uh, actually he says for the human race, without getting into the question here of whether or not Calvin was universalist, most definitely he was not, but that he died for the sins of the world. All that he did, in other words, all that has to do with the Historia Salutis, with the once-for-all accomplishment of redemption, that is of no good to us as long as Christ remains outside of us. So Christ, uh, in other words, Christ, Paul is bringing, uh, Paul, Calvin's most faithful <laughs> disciple, Paul. Uh, 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 Paul's most faithful disciple, Calvin, is, is, uh, is um, I think, uh, focusing on, on the heart of the matter and what he goes on I've just sort of been reinforcing what you're saying. What he what he goes on immediately to do is to talk about the secret energy of the Holy Spirit, which, as Calvin uh, details it, uh, produces faith, and that faith unites us to Christ, so that everything that uh, Christ is as crucified and resurrected, that is Christ now exalted becomes ours mm-hmm. and basically can you always use the language basically that's that reduces to a, a, a duplex gratia a double blessing that addresses us sin in its guilt and power uh, equally mm. now to speak a little bit more specifically on that exact point christ we're united to him and uh, his work is good news for us because he's accomplished salvation for us in Historia Salutis, the accomplishment of redemption. We have it, and it's applied to us because we're united to him. Now, if there, first off, I guess where would we start? Is there a logical priority of one benefit, such as justification, sanctification, glorification, or adoption? Is there any logical priority or ordering of those benefits in Historia Salutis? In Historia Salutis? Yeah, interesting question. I've thought about that question a lot as it's raised uh, in Ordo Salutis context. Um, Yeah, I would... um, I would... um, I think I would answer that question this way that um the deepest the 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 account the, the the consequence of human sin is that it breaks the bond of covenant fellowship between God and his image bearer that happens in Adam and then it's it's replicated in every subsequent human being so um yeah I would want to give a certain priority to the forensic if I could put it that way that what 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 Christ does most elementally and most uh, foundationally in his death as a real atonement to sin is that he propitiates a, the, the just judicial wrath of God. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think that, that that's important to the gospel. Mm-hmm. I, I think that if you... Uh, you know, if we had Paul sitting around this table uh, since we we began focusing on First Corinthians fifteen, um, <clears throat> that would be the um, uh, the emphasis that he would um, he would draw attention to divine wrath and the way in which uh, as he as he does, for instance, in documenting the universality of human sin in Romans chapter one, and that uh, uh, the death of Christ is is 
uh, a, a propitiatory, propitiatory sacrifice that removes that wrath. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. And so if I pick it up on your question mm-hmm. and pushing a little further, I, I think then I would want to say that that, that the the pri that that pro- the priority of <clears throat> look at it this way um christ by propitiating our sin by removal of the just condemnation that we deserve as bearing that uh, con- condemnation in a substitutionary representative way um as the culmination of his earthly ministry of his obedience uh, his reward for that is the Holy Spirit. So I would say you're, you're, and and the Holy Spirit then is the gift that he receives uh, as the crown of his labors in his exaltation that he shares with the church, gives to the church as a principle of new life renovation, uh, breaking the bondage of slavery. So the uh, slavery of sin, so that I think you, you do... Uh, the, the, the removal of wrath is antecedent uh, in the Historia Salutis to the uh, reception of uh, the Spirit as uh, as the life-giving principle uh, at work in the church. Would ha- oh, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, go I was just going to ask if the, does that I mean can we are we saying anything even chronologically in terms of the death preceding the resurrection? Does the, does, does Christ bearing the full wrath of God as a substitution for us on the cross? Uh, that is, that is, uh, particularly in itself, the, the, the judicial and condemning wrath of God prior to the reception of the spirit at resurrection. Yes, very definitely. I think that's very helpful. Um, so there's the historia, the grounding, of the ordo in the historia, yeah, death so, first, <clears throat> followed by resurrection. Yeah, and I and I would say, particularly re- for reformed thinking, that is concerned to emphasize that the atonement is not a matter of providing some kind of potential reconciliation sure. for every human being, but uh, and uh, that then is actualized or made good on by those who happen to exercise faith in Christ, ultimately of their, well, at least of their own cooperation or initiative. But it is a matter of a actually accomplished redemption that then is appropriated by faith in uh, by each of his his people. But uh, see, I think that does then provide <clears throat> a getting back to issues of order salutis. That provides the stable forensic basis, not justification in the application of redemption. But that provides the stable forensic basis for uh, the spiritually energizing work of the Holy Spirit in effectual calling in uniting us uh, to Christ so that now his righteousness is reckoned as ours, our justification, as well as uh, his spirit is at work in us, uh, forming us in his image. Now, so, oh, so how about the... Um uh, the Ordo Salutis now. I mean, uh, Camden asked this question, is there a priority of justification, the sanctification in the Historia? Would we say the same then carrying over to the Ordo Salutis? Would there be a priority of, a, a logical priority, if not a chronological one, 
Um, maybe you could talk about the relationship between a logical and chronological priority now, can, of one can to I the make other. Because yeah. I, I, I want to piggyback on your question, if I may. Uh, I believe Calvin says that the issue of justification must be settled for the, the believer to be able to make progress uh, in sanctification. Uh, I believe that's a fair a summary of what Calvin said that we must be we must know that the father is faithful or is is favorable to us in order to make progress in the Christian life so that that piggybacks well on my question yes. in terms of a in terms of a priority yeah yeah um yeah and that I think uh, that statement is in institutes three eleven one and he probably he probably makes it elsewhere and it's it's right there that he talks about justification as being the main hinge on which our religion turns um, but um so i think if you look at the structure of calvin's teaching um as i thought to put it elsewhere in writing uh, a hinge isn't a standalone reality a hinge isn't a skyhook um <laughs> It, the skyhook uh, even requires a cable and uh, and, a <laughs> and 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 in in this instance, it's it's our union with Christ. And see, this is this is the problem then that everyone has to wrestle with. This kind of a a chicken and egg uh, state of affairs. Uh, and Reformed theology has always stressed uh, the priority of regeneration to. Uh, justification in the sense that regeneration in logical and causal sequence regeneration produces faith which in turn appropriates justification so the the logic of the re, of of classical reform teaching on order salutis is to um in a sense set the renovative prior to the forensic now i think a lot of people uh uh can a concern that this is somehow now going to make um, our justification dependent on our inner renewal. I want then to argue that um, that a regeneration uh, is really no more than than the bare a production of uh, of a faith that rests or trusts in Christ uh, without um, a really. Um, more or less, I think, separating that faith from how it's going to express itself. Uh, in obedience, but I, I don't think that's an adequate understanding of regeneration according to Scripture or the best in Reformed theology. That what it is is the is the is the reorientation of who I am as the core of my being, uh, the uh, the the redirection of my life, so that I am now disposed from this alpha point. Um, and as it unfolds over time, it's bound to come to expression. Uh, I'm a, I'm disposed to serve God and to delight in Him. Uh, I've been delivered from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves. So, um, yeah, for all these questions, I think the oral salutis. If I because we get in, we're talking about a lot of different things here. Get involved in different angles. Uh, the forensic basis of our salvation is established in the definiteness of the atonement that took place in the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. On the basis of that, in uh, effectual calling, uh, the Spirit, I like to envision it, 
Christ takes hold of me in an effective call as he is now because of his resurrection, the life-giving spirit. Christ and the spirit, one in their working, the exalted Christ and the spirit, take hold of who we are as sinners. That hold, that, that hold is such that it is faith creating in us so that our, the reflex of his laying hold of us is that we lay hold of him. And in our laying hold of him, we now have a, a share, actually and potentially, in everything he is, uh, as Calvin said, everything he's done for the salvation of the human race. Uh, our, uh, his righteousness reckoned as ours, and um, his image being formed in us without confusion, yet without separation. So I think, I, I, I do, I think, I think it's difficult, either even within uh, a classical reformed uh, order salutis of, of, of causal sequencing, uh, to uh, maintain a priority of the forensic, because regeneration on that view is prior to justification. Because, because we would want to say that possessing Jesus is what justifies. Uh, yes. Justification <clears throat> comes from that. Yeah, see, Calvin, uh, very much, um, as you can anticipate or appreciate, I'm very much under the impact of Calvin. He naturally comes into this discussion. If Jim hadn't brought him in, um, I I would have brought him in because uh, I think his his insights here are, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, and I believe I am, uh, are, I I think, just just profound. Calvin says uh, in a number of places, we are justified by faith because we are united to Christ by faith, hmm. and um, in the sense that Calvin is 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 making that point, you cannot, for Calvin, reverse that statement and say we are united to Christ by faith because we are justified by faith. It's the, the, there there is, of course, we're talking about what is true in a moment of time. Uh, at, at the at the initiation of our of our at the point that we're where we are first united to Christ, but it is because we are united to Christ by faith that we're justified by faith. Right. It's a logical priority. It's not it's not a chronological priority where you're saying that there's a kind of renovative <clears throat> activity that that goes on uh, over an extended period of time yes. when the justification comes in. Yeah. And of course, I think you know to be fair to uh, to everyone in this discussion. I, I think uh, where where even those who would want to insist, uh, who, who I anticipate would perhaps would react perhaps even strongly to the emphasis that I'm making or the point I'm making. You want to insist on a on a priority of justification. I think they're usually clear that they're not insisting on some kind of temporal right. priority. Right. Now, uh, sanctification uh, has two aspects. Can you explain those uh, for us, and what would be the biblical uh, basis for the two aspects of uh, sanctification? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think this is an important question. Um, see, if, if, if we're looking at sanctification as a process, then no one least of all I would or no one should have any hesitation in saying justification is prior to sanctification. It's a no-brainer. 
Um, because our justification is settled. It's once and done, and the process follows in time. I think it becomes another matter when you are, if you want to argue because of that undeniable, and it's not just a temporal priority. I think of the statement you were making, Jeff. If God is, is, is unless God, as Calvin says, unless God is no longer my wrathful judge, but my loving Heavenly Father, there can be no progress in the Christian life. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the process uh, is... Uh, Justification, I would put it this way, is an indispensable presupposition or precondition better of, of, of progressive sanctification as progressive as well as it's obviously temporally prior. So uh, in this, in these discuss, I wish we could get beyond in, in, in some of the discussions that are going on about the priority of justification and sanctification. Nobody... Uh, well, I've sh- got to be careful, nobody, but, um, you know, should. Uh, 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 I think the issue is not whether justification is prior to progressive sanctification. Where the issue becomes more uh, sticky, of course, is recognizing that there is more to sanctification <laughs> than, um, than its progressive character. Uh, that is what uh, John Murray, not... I would want to stress as some kind of new theological innovation on his part, but what I think he has helpfully labeled, for the first time at least that I'm aware of, of what the best in Reformed theology has always understood, that there is more to sanctification than ongoing process. There is what Murray calls definitive sanctification. That is, the um, that the moment I am joined to Christ... And this is what I think Calvin has in view. I would want to argue that Calvin may not use a definitive sanctification language, and he may not even uh, dis- t- uh, t- distinguish uh, as clearly as uh, can be done subsequently between definitive and progressive. But when he stresses the way he does in books, book three of the Institutes, um, the, the inseparability of sanctification and uh, justification as as the duplex gratia, the the twin grace that comes with union with Christ, uh, he is thinking, I think, most elementally of that alpha point, and 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 that delivers uh, from sin as a controlling power. Now, very quickly, because you ask in your question, you know, the biblical basis. I think uh, uh, there there are a number of passages the way in which Paul uses sanctification language. Uh, to describe not so much a process, um, uh, but um, a uh, definitively settled status. The way he addresses the the, uh, the Corinthians, for instance, at the beginning of uh, the Corinthian church, uh, but most decisively is Romans six. And and I would say here is where the discussion uh, uh, needs to focus exegetically. There is. Uh, uh, there have been a number of Reformed interpreters, uh, and they're being followed today, who, who see the, well, let me back up just a second. Uh, the question is, that Paul asked rhetorically, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? And um, that question specifies on its negative side uh, the thesis of that uh, controls in the section 6-1 to 7-6 that by virtue of their union with Christ, 
uh, believers are dead to sin as the controlling power of the principle of slavery in their lives, and they are uh, they are brought into a new regimen of submission or slavery, which is to God and to righteousness. So uh, I was going to say, uh, some Reformed interpreters have wanted to argue that the death to sin there in Romans 6 is delivers from the guilt of sin and uh, talking about justification. I, I think that that is not likely, almost certainly not the case. Certainly not, for instance, how Calvin understands in his Romans commentary that in view is the death to sin is a once-for-all break uh, with sin as Lord in my life. And that provides uh, the dynamic and the found the foundation and a dynamic, uh, even though Paul doesn't bring the Holy Spirit immediately into the discussion there, realized through the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in the ongoing life of progressive sanctification. There's no progressive sanctification without uh, definitive sanctification. But see, I think... Uh, if I could just go on here, I have had the conversation, which uh, has really surprised me, of uh, uh, someone defending the position that uh, the death to sin is justification. Uh, and I said, well, then then you must be understanding Paul to be saying, well, uh, you have been forgiven your sins. Now, therefore, live your best at showing your gratitude for being having your sins forgiven. And the person said, yeah, I guess it, it does mean something like that. But see, I think that just misses the, the depth of what uh, Paul has uh, in view there. That um, See, our gratitude, as important as it is, our gratitude will never cut it. Our gratitude will always be defective, always be weak, always... Uh, uh, be of uh, of 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 such limited capacity of what it ought to be. Uh, we need something deeper uh, for our sanctification than uh, gratitude for our justification. We need Christ's Spirit at work in us. Well, let me ask you that um, a question on that as we are about ready to close. How would you relate sanctification to doing good works? Uh, maybe you could bring in the confession. Uh, the Westminster Confession, uh, to address that issue, or you could just go straight to Scripture. You could do that too. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but I'm I'm curious to know. Um, you're you're talking about the guilt, grace, gratitude model that many people have, viewing sanctification as a response to the gospel rather than being part of. How would you more specifically define sanctification? You already alluded to that. And then what is the role of good works or the doing of good works in conjunction with that? <clears throat> yeah, I, you know, we don't want to lose sight that there, particularly as we look at, see, I, w- I would say definitive sanctification is monergistic. It's, a, it's, it's nothing less than a sovereign work of God that is a work of regeneration uh, so that uh, I am now what I was not before, um, I'm alive in Christ. Now, progressive sanctification then involves, uh, I hesitate to use this word because it can be misunderstood, a certain synergy. Uh, It involves the mystery, a certain mystery of our renewed wills, which are so imperfect 
in their being renewed, uh, a struggling continually against temptation and sin in our lives, how that relates uh, to God's, uh, the working of God's Spirit in our lives. And so I would say, yeah, good works involve us, involve our, obviously, our willing and our doing. But, well, let me see a statement I read uh, in G.C. Burkhauer, which you already don't mentioned. Have, <laughs> don't have to be so uh, hesitant about it. Uh, his book, toward the close of his book on faith and sanctification, uh, his, he makes a statement that I found so helpful. Uh, is something to the effect, the, the effect of this. Biblically considered, good works. By the way, he's reflecting, and I we should have brought this in. Um, Paul, um, well, everybody listening to this ought to covenant, if they haven't done so, never to a, a quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 without verse 10. <laughs> because uh, they belong together. Uh, and, and, and you truncate what Paul is wanting to say there about salvation by grace through faith if you stop at the end of verse 9. Now, if you don't have in there what verses 8 and 9 have, then, okay, you have real problems, and the gospel is compromised. And no, and But uh, it's not just what is said in 8 and 9. He goes on to say we're created in Christ, created in Christ for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's the scripture I would reference as mm. much as any. And then let me complete. I started talking about what Burkhauer says. It's in a context where he's he's talking about Ephesians 2. He puts it this way. Biblically considered, good works are not the way of man to God, but the way of God to man. That is, God working in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. So the synergy, uh, if you want to use that word, is is there clear in Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Mm -hmm. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That brings the good works of Ephesians 2, 10 in. Uh, Oh, and ultimately, why, how? Because it's God who is at work in you. Yeah, and that's how we can say, I think is the way you put it, I believe in by faith, not by sight, is it's 100% the work of God, but also 100% the work of man, because it, the works we do are spirit-wrought works. Yeah. Jonathan Edwards said, God does all and we do all. Hmm. Yeah, said. Well, I... I I regret to say we're just about out of time. We have to get moving because of schedules. But thank you very much, Dr. Gaffin, for joining us. This has been very helpful to me, to the rest of us, and I'm sure to all the people that are going to listen. So we appreciate you taking time out of your day to come speak with us. My privilege, really. (laughs) These are wonderful matters to reflect on. Amen. Uh, I want to make people aware of our website. You can uh, find more information and other other materials at reformedforum.org. Uh, you can figure out how to subscribe to our feeds there. We also have a couple other websites, including Nick's feedingonchrist.com, which has been posting some things recently. They're very interesting. And uh, germane to our discussion today is historiasalutis.com, which is a site we've devoted to uh, reflecting on uh, redemptive history and biblical theology. Uh, and you can uh, visit those websites and uh, read to your heart's content. <laughs> Uh, if you'd like to get a hold of us, of course, you can mail us, email us at mail at reformedforum.org. Uh, but until next time, we want to thank everybody for listening, and we, of course, very much look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>